Happy Easter to you. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it is great to see all of your beautiful faces this morning as we celebrate the one thing that changed everything. And so I would just say, man, whether you're here and you've been following Jesus for 30 or 40 years, or maybe you're here and you just find this whole Jesus stuff utterly preposterous, in either case, and I know we have people in both camps, I'm really happy that you're here. And so whether you're here to celebrate Jesus with us, or whether you're here because your mama drug your butt here, or you just want to get your wife off your back until next Easter, uh, I really believe that God has something to say to each one of us uh, this morning. And so my challenge to you this morning is really simple, uh, and that is, listen, no matter where you are uh, in your spiritual journey, I would just encourage you to tune in for the next 30 or 35 minutes or so with an open mind and an open heart, right? You've really, you've really got nothing to lose. If what I'm about to say is as goofy as you think it's about to be, just roll your eyes and go eat a chocolate Easter bunny and you'll feel a lot better. But if God has something that he wants to say to you, to communicate to your heart this morning, how amazing would that be, right? So you've got nothing to lose. Potentially, you've got everything to gain. And here's my promise to you, especially if you're here and you're new to new life, uh, we're not going to do anything weird today, okay? So I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or come up here on stage or anything like that. We're not, listen, we're not even going to break out the snakes today, which we typically love to do here, you know? Um, just kidding. We only do that on Christmas. So, um, so if, you're, if you're feeling a little bit uptight this morning, like, man, what is this preacher cat about to say or try to get me to do? Uh, I would just say, please relax. Um, I know I can't uh, change your mind. I can't change a, a human heart. Only God can do that. I'm not that good. I'm not that smart. And so uh, there's no pressure on me this morning. There's no pressure on you this morning. We're, we're going to do this, and then we're going to go eat some good ham and deviled eggs. All right? Does that sound like a deal? That's what we're going to do this morning. All right? Every, everything in life, you guys know this, everything in life has a beginning. So uh, you had a beginning. Your parents had a beginning. Your job had a beginning. Um, all of your relationships had a starting point. Well, faith, and the Christian faith in particular, also had a starting point. And all of this Jesus stuff that we've just been singing about, and I'm about to talk about, I'm just convinced that a lot of people reject faith because they don't believe it's based in logic. So I think it's just kind of like this fairy tale for the weak, or maybe it's like this uh, concocted myth to explain life's mysteries. And so my hope for you, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my hope for you is uh, to the to, to, to best of my ability, to the very least, to at least compel you to consider the Jesus claim in a new and a fresh way this morning. And if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, you're like, man, I'm in. I'm a, I'm a disciple. I'm following him. My hope is that you will leave this morning, you will leave this place emboldened and encouraged and your faith just set a light in a new way. And so uh, everything in life has a beginning, has a starting point, and sometimes we need to go all the way back to the beginning to make sense of it all. And so that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of time, and then we're going to work our way up to the present day. Now, 
We certainly don't have time to read all of it, so I'm just going to try to quickly kind of nutshell for you the first three chapters in the book of Genesis, right? So we're going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, okay? So God has, he's just created everything that is. It's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's stunning, it's paradise. We're talking perfect harmony between God and humans and creation. It's an existence that you and I, we can't even fathom. We can't wrap our minds around this because, frankly, we live in such a busted up, broken, tattered world that's been torn by pain and suffering and shattered dreams. But listen, that, that is not, the, what we experience today in our world is not the way it always was. That was not, this is not the original design. Now, many of you guys know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they're in this amazing, beautiful, plush, perfect garden. And then Eve is deceived by Satan who appears in the form of a serpent. And then, you know what, Adam is there. Adam is there, he's standing right beside her the whole time like a chump. He does nothing at all to step in to, to protect his wife. He eats of the fruit as well. And so they both choose sin. They both choose their own way over God and his way. And we call this point in time the fall, right, the fall. And so since that point in time, our world has been catapulted into this tailspin of chaos and pain and destruction and death. And worst of all, our sin has now separated us from a perfect and holy God who created us and who loves us deeply. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, man, Adam and Eve, what a bunch of schmucks. I can't believe they messed everything up. No, no. Listen, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, we have all sinned. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. If it hadn't been Adam and Eve, guess what? It would have been you. Or maybe it would have been me, but I'm betting it's probably going to be you. But it's like, or it might have been both of us together. Maybe that's safer for me to say, right? But in either case, paradise is now shattered in the garden. And so now what? We've now introduced sin and chaos and death into the world. It's launched us into this nasty tailspin that frankly has only gotten worse over time. It's not getting better. Harmony between God and people and creation, it's now broken. We're now separated from this perfect God, our creator, by our sin. Listen, this is really bad news. Like, I need you to feel the weight of how bad this is this morning before we can move on. But God, but God, loving people with a ferocious love says, no, no, I'm coming after my people. I'm coming after my sons and my daughters. I'm not letting it go down like that. And then we get this incredible promise in Genesis 3. I call this promise the gospel in the garden, right? And again, we don't have time to read it, but God is addressing Satan after the fall, and he says, this woman's offspring, Eve's, one of Eve's descendants, you're going to strike his heel. In other words, you're going to injure him. You're going to wound him, but then he's going to crush your head. And this is the first messianic reference or prophecy that the Savior, a Savior was going to come one day, and he was going to crush death, sin, and hell once and for all. And so from that day forward, everybody throughout history is anticipating this great rescuer or this great redeemer to show up on the scene and make things right. It's like, just imagine a good suspense movie. 
So I don't know what your favorite movies are. If you're uh, like a Marvel person or Star Wars, I have three kids, so I kind of think in terms of Disney movies. So it's like uh, Beauty and the Beast or Snow White or Peter Pan or something like that. But they all have kind of the same theme, right? These suspense movies, these hero movies. Everything is going really bad. Like people are dying, people are getting kidnapped, and you're like, oh man, this is, this is awful. You're like, man, if it ends like this, I'm gonna throw my shoe through the TV. This is, this is terrible, this is depressing. And then at the last possible second, the hero shows up, right? And rescues everybody and makes everything new, makes everything right, and we're like, yeah, that's awesome, right? Well, people throughout history were like this. They were on the edge of their seats waiting for this kind of promised Genesis 3 savior to show up. And then one day, Jesus steps onto the scene of history and changed everything forever. This is the beginning of our faith. Our faith, I want you to understand this morning, is rooted in a historical event. So if you have a Bible, either in print or on a device, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, head for Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, we're gonna hang out in chapter 24. That's the third uh, book in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And uh, some of you know this, some of you may not. Luke, our author this morning, was actually a Greek doctor. So he was, uh, he was a brilliant mind, uh, smart dude, very well educated. And uh, he investigated the life and claims of Jesus. And through his investigation of Jesus, he actually became a believer and a follower himself, which, by the way, is oftentimes what happens. When we look at the evidence with an open uh, heart and mind, oftentimes we, we believe. And so... Uh, Luke's testimony carries a, a lot of weight. He interviewed uh, tons of eyewitnesses and really investigated this. So uh, just a little background before we jump into the text this morning. At this point in Luke's story, at this point in the narrative, Jesus has been crucified, okay, which would have been common in the Roman world. His lifeless body has been removed from the Roman cross. He's been buried in the tomb of a very well-known, prominent man named Joseph, now, his disciples at this point would have been crushed. I'm talking devastated, disillusioned. Not only that, they're terrified, they're petrified. Most all of them we know are in hiding because they're probably thinking, we're next. <laughs> I mean, they know who we are. We've been with Jesus. We've been in public. We've been teaching with him. They know who we are. They know our names. They know where we live. They know who our families are. We're probably next. And so they're holed up in a room and they're hiding and the Pharisees, these kind of religious jerks, come to Pilate, who's the Roman governor of that province, and they say, hey, hey, listen, Pilate, uh, we remember that Jesus told a lot of really crazy lies. He told a lot of really crazy stories, but now we remember one of the craziest things that he said. <laughs> he, he told everybody that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die, but then he was going to rise again on the third day. And so we're, we're kind of worried that his disciples are gonna go and steal his body, and then that would be really bad, right? Because then he could say, hey, see, he's, he's resurrected. What he said was true, and so we don't want that to happen. And so, Pilate, could you please give us a, a guard of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb so that nobody tries to steal the body? And so Pilate's like, sure, you can have a guard of soldiers. And so scholars believe this would have been probably somewhere between four and 16 Roman soldiers. So they go and they seal Joseph's tomb. Jesus is inside of the tomb now at this point. They seal it with a large stone. They set the rock. Then they set these, these Roman guards, these like Navy SEAL level Roman soldiers. And it's into this kind of intense, 
dark, heart-pounding scene that we're going to enter the narrative this morning. Luke 24, hope you're there by now, beginning in verse 1. Dr. Luke writes this. But on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, at early dawn, so it's probably, you could imagine, still dark. There's dew on the ground. It's probably a little foggy, misty, hazy as, he go, as they go. And it says they, and when he said, Luke says they, he's referring to several women who were disciples of Jesus. When they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, this is biblical language for angels. And we kind of talked about this before. Angels are not like chubby little toddlers floating around on a cloud playing a harp, right? Angels, biblically speaking, when they show up, they are fierce. They are bright. They are intimidating. They are these incredible angelic beings. And Matthew, in his gospel, he tells us that right before the women show up, there's this massive earthquake, and then these angels show up, and the Roman guards are so terrified by this massive earthquake and the sight of these angels, they literally pass out. And they just hit the floor like, man, we're out. We're not, we can't handle this. Verse 5, and as they, the women, were frightened, see, that's the normal reaction when we see angels, they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. And the man, or the angel, said to them, and I love this, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. I love how the angels are just like, why are y'all even here, girls? Like, what, what, are you, what are you doing here? There ain't nobody, ain't nobody here. He told you he was gonna rise. He already busted up out of this place. Verse eight, and they remembered his words. Verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest, right? These are the 12 disciples minus Judas, who has betrayed Jesus by this point. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, tune in. Listen to this, verse 11. But these words, he's talking to the disciples, the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not Believe them. Now, I would just guess that a room this size, as packed as it is, that there are some of you, probably many of you, in the room this morning that are in this same place. Now, all of this just seems like an idle tale, like a tall tale, like this is all made up. Well, guess what? Even his disciples didn't believe when they first heard. But then something happened. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Of course it was Peter. He rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths, which is what they wrapped bodies in during those days after people died. He saw the linen cloths, or the burial cloths, by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, Peter walked into that tomb, a defeated skeptic who had walked away from Jesus not believing. Now remember, Peter's the same guy who was so scared the night that Jesus was arrested that he denies Jesus not once, but three separate times. Right? People keep recognizing him. They're like, hey, wait a minute. 
think you're one of his disciples, right? You've got the same accent as him. You're from the same place. We saw you with him, and he just denies it, denies it, denies it. Even denies it to a teenage girl that recognizes him. And then the last time, he's so frustrated with it. He's so scared. He says, listen, I don't know the blankety-blank man. He curses. Now, maybe you're here, and you're like Peter was, man. Maybe you walked away because you feel like God didn't show up when you needed him to. Maybe somebody you loved was really sick and you prayed really hard for God to save him or to heal him and he didn't. Maybe you're here and you're like Peter and you feel like God let you down at some point in your life. You feel like he abandoned you. Maybe you're even here and you feel like you've just messed up too much. You think, yeah, Chris, all this Jesus stuff, that's, that's really good for you churchy, goody two-shoes type people, but you don't know me, man. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's in my past, and you just think, man, I've gone too far. I've done too much for God to ever really love me or redeem me. Or maybe you just have questions. Maybe you have a lot of questions. Maybe you have doubts, and that's fair. We're gonna get to that in a minute, but here, here's the deal. Listen, Peter may have walked into that tomb a defeated, confused, skeptic, but he walked out of that tomb a changed man and a ferocious leader that gave his life in the cause of Jesus. So my question for you this morning is, what happened? How, how, do, you, how do you explain that? How, how did Peter go from a coward to a fearless leader in the Jesus movement? Listen, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Peter came face to face with a man who was dead and was then very much alive. In the rest of the chapter, Luke tells us that Jesus is appearing to all of his disciples and to a bunch of other people. He lived with them, he ate with them, he taught them for 40 days, and they were never the same again. Now look, people who don't want to believe this is true have a couple of problems. The first problem is this. Listen, almost every credible scholar and historian agrees that the historical Jesus lived and was executed by the Roman government almost 2,000 years ago. Nobody even disputes this as a fact anymore. It's now widely accepted that three days after Jesus was executed, that his tomb was in fact empty. That's not even really a source of debate anymore. The only real disagreement is on how the tomb ended up empty. And here's where I think people have to come up with some pretty creative and quite frankly, some really goofy theories to explain away this historical event. And listen, this, that is precisely what the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb is. It is a historical fact. Amen. So let, let's rewind for, for just a minute. Let's recap. We have the fall in the garden, right? Adam and Eve choose sin over God. It messes everything up. People are separated now from God because of their sin. But God promises to send a rescuer. And then a guy named Jesus, he shows up on the scene, he's performing all these miracles, he's feeding all these hungry people, he's healing sick people, he's teaching with authority, he's loving people in ways they had never been loved before, and he says, look, I'm the guy you've been looking for. I'm the guy that God promised in Genesis 3 in the garden, and listen, I'm going to prove it to you by dying and walking out of that grave three days later. And then Jesus is executed, just like he said was going to happen. And three days later, his tomb is undeniably empty. Like, nobody even argues this anymore. And people who don't want to believe this, people who don't want to submit their lives to Jesus and follow him, 
end up concocting some pretty elaborate theories to explain the empty tomb. So let me, I just want to run through a couple of the most popular theories out there and then show you uh, why they don't work. To use a southern phrase to show you why that dog don't hunt, all right? And then I want to end by giving you some hope, all right? So whether you're here, you're a believer, you're not a believer, I want you to walk out of here with a measure of hope and then we can all go eat our ham and deviled eggs and steal our kids' best chocolate out of their, um, out of their little thing, right? So probably the most, the most well-known or popular theory to explain the empty tomb is it's called the stolen body theory. So the theory goes, uh, yeah, the tomb was empty. Can't really argue that anymore. Uh, uh, yeah, they never found Jesus' body anywhere, but that's because he was, the body was stolen. Somebody stole the body. They hid it somewhere. Nobody ever found it. And so uh, if you kind of hold to that theory, there are three basic uh, options for who could have stolen the body. So uh, we got the Romans as an option, right? Now remember, the Romans are the one who ordered the execution of Jesus. Pilate was the one, the Roman governor Pilate was the one who sent the guards to, to guard the tomb so nobody could steal the, the body of Jesus. So they're, they're out. There's no motive there. Then you have the Jews who, by the way, they had everything to lose if that body goes missing. That's why they went to Pilate and said, give us a guard so nobody steals his body. So, so they're out. That pretty much leaves the disciples of Jesus, which is where most people who hold to this theory land. It was the disciples of Jesus that stole the body. Now, the, the problem with that is that you have to believe that the same guys who were so terrified after Jesus was executed that they were holed up together, hiding, trembling in fear, that this same band of cowards somehow mustered up enough courage in the middle of the night to go outmaneuver or overpower between four and 16 Roman guards. Man. Trained killers, like Navy SEAL combat level dudes. These 11 terrified fishermen and tax collectors did that. And we're expected to believe that. Not only that, we know, history tells us, most of the disciples gladly died for Jesus. History tells us Peter was crucified upside down after watching his wife being crucified. They all died horrible, brutal deaths except for John, who suffered terribly in his own way. And you want me to believe that, that all these guys gladly endured torture and brutal executions for something that they knew was a lie, right? Because if they stole the body, they knew it wasn't true. So they suffered and they died for something they knew wasn't true. That's what this theory says. Now listen, listen I, I may lie about something, but if you're about to strap me into the electric chair, I'm breaking. I'm just telling you right now. I'm gonna rat you out. I'm gonna rat everybody out. Like, hey, I'm gonna say, hey man, I, like we stole the body. We stole, actually I didn't, Peter did. And he buried it, uh, like, on Merriman Avenue under a Five Guys Burger restaurant. I'm like, I'll take you. I'll show you where the body is. Just don't kill me. Like, I am not dying for a lie. And neither would you. You know why? Because you're not insane. Well, at least most of you aren't. There's a couple still trying to figure out. But listen, most people will not die for a hoax. And yet history tells us every last one of these guys refused to sell out to recant in the face of their own brutal executions. Listen to me, these guys didn't steal a body. This theory holds no water, it makes absolutely no sense. So that's theory number one. Popular theory number two, it's known as the swoon theory. 
This is the idea that Jesus didn't really die, right? So he probably just like passed out on the cross and, uh, you know, they bury him and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's kind of dizzy, you know, and he goes and stumbles and rolls away this massive rock and he, he sneaks past these uh, Navy SEAL Roman guards and he lives the rest of his life in secrecy on some tropical island. That sound incredible to you? That sounds pretty asinine to me, right? Listen, the Romans were expert executioners. They perfected the art of killing people. Not only that, we know that the beating that Jesus received before the crucifixion, it was called a flogging. Historians tell us that oftentimes men were killed because of the massive blood loss incurred by a flogging. These same ancient historians like Cicero tell us that it was not uncommon for a man to be partially disemboweled during a flogging. Literally, they would have their organs hanging out the back of their body. One historian records a time where a man's rib went flying from his body during a flogging. This is why so many historians believe that Jesus died so quickly on the cross. Most people lingered for three or four days on the cross. It was a brutal way to die, the most brutal way to die. And Jesus was dead within just a few hours. And that's because, scholars believe that's because he was halfway there already when he got to the cross. Many men didn't even survive the flogging. So we're to believe that Jesus, in this weakened state, massive blood loss, nailed to a Roman cross, spear run through his side so that water and blood flow out of his body. We don't have time, but medically speaking, that tells us Jesus was undoubtedly dead. And we are to believe that he not only survives all of this, but he wakes up, he, he rolls away a huge stone, outmaneuvers a bunch of soldiers, and disappears into thin air, never to be seen again. Nonsense. Amen. Grasping at straws. Now listen, these are our options. Like you listen to, to like really smart, intelligent scholars that don't believe, these are the best options out there for us. This is what we have to choose from. Unless, unless Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. And that suffer and die and rise again on the third day, proving that he was the promised one. Proving that he was the one that God promised to Eve in the garden all those years ago. The one who would come to conquer sin, death, and hell forever and set people free and restore people back to right relationship with God because of his perfect life and his sacrificial death on their behalf. Listen, Jesus told everybody who would listen he was gonna do it, and then he went and did it. The resurrection is the most logical explanation to the historical fact of the empty tomb. Scriptures tell us later on that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time after the resurrection. His disciples went from cowards to fearless leaders who all gladly died for him. His own half-brother, James, and I think this may be the greatest proof of the resurrection. Uh, James, by the way, uh, didn't believe Jesus, which can't really uh, blame him much, right? If your brother or sister comes to you and goes, hey, guess what? I got, got a little something I want to tell you. I'm God. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to need you to start worshiping me. Right, you're probably gonna smack him in the face, right? So, so we can't be too hard on James, but James didn't believe while Jesus was um, 
growing up with him. Uh, but history tells us that after the resurrection, James not only became a believer, but he came, became a very brave, awesome leader in the early Jesus movement in Jerusalem. Paul, by the way, is this uh, Jewish leader, really powerful guy. He was known as Saul. Uh, he hated Jesus. In fact, he hated Jesus so much that he spent his time killing followers of Jesus and imprisoning them and trying to stamp out the church until he actually encounters Jesus on a road one day and he becomes the most influential disciple of Jesus in history. Listen, I'm just telling you, you have to do something with all this. Like, this is not my opinion. This is history. You go, go fact check all of this. You have to do something with Jesus. You have to do something with the empty tomb. And if Jesus really did walk out of that grave, that changes everything. You have questions, you have doubts, fine, welcome to the club. I'm just telling you, you need to learn how to doubt your doubts. The resurrection happened and that changes everything. I wanna give you three kind of hope-filled truths and then we'll uh, land the plane this morning. So uh, here, here's the first truth that I don't want you to walk out of here without. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus is not a myth for the weak, it's a historical event. It's a historical fact. You say, Chris, man, listen, dead people don't rise from the dead. Well, you're right, most people don't. This was, this was a supernatural event, which just means, it means this, listen, God operates above the natural order of things. And there are times when he suspends the natural order in his world. Guess what? It's his world. He can do what he wants. There are times when he suspends the natural order in his world to do extraordinary things. And the resurrection of Jesus is one of many of these events that we see throughout history. Listen, miracles happen. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm the biggest skeptic. I'm the biggest cynic by nature. You can, you can ask my wife. Like, I don't believe anything. You tell me the sky's blue, I'm gonna go outside 10 times and check. I want peer-based reviews on it. I, I, like, I don't believe anything. But, but understand this, listen. I believe that the resurrection actually happened to the core of my being. Yes. Jesus walked out of that grave and he is alive. I'm just telling you, he's alive today and he offers life and forgiveness and freedom to anyone who would come to him. Yes. Listen, he... He loves you. He proved it by coming for you, by bleeding for you, by dying for you, by rising for you, and by offering you everything that your heart seeks in himself. It's truth number two. The resurrection of Jesus offers you a new start. Listen, no matter what your past is, I don't really care what your past is. No matter where you came from, no matter what you've done, Jesus offers you a new life and a new start. The resurrection is proof of that. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, right? This atheist Jesus hater who meets Jesus and begins to follow him. I want you to listen to his words as he writes to a people in this crazy city called Corinth. This will be on the screens for you. Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, as Paul implored the Corinthians so many years ago, I implore you today, be reconciled to God through Jesus. He offers you a new you, a better you, a new heart, a new start, a brand new life. What could possibly keep you from the very best thing that could ever happen to you? Jesus takes dead people and he makes them alive. He gives them real life. I'm talking about something beyond the rat race of your nine to five and just living to pay your bills. He gives meaning and purpose and hope and life and adventure in his kingdom. And the resurrection and the empty tomb is the starting point of our faith. And we have good reason to stake our lives on it. God offers this new life to anyone who would receive it. History tells us that by 351 uh, AD, over, get this, over half the Roman Empire confessed Jesus as Lord. Essentially, within three generations, the most pagan, brutal, bloodthirsty empire the world has ever known became a majority Christian nation. What happened? How do you explain? Look, look, this, is, this is fact. This is history. How do you explain that? Something happened. I would argue something supernatural happened. And again, this is history. This is not just my opinion. I'm not making this up. You have to do something with this, friend. So I'm just telling you, man, even if your wife drug you here, you came here to get your grandma off your back, I'm telling you, you need to consider these things. Man. There are around 2.5 billion Christians in the world today. One third of the world's population confesses Jesus as God. We mark our time, we mark our calendars by this homeless guy who lived and died in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Like you, you can't just shelf this. It's too important. It's too revolutionary. History has never seen anything like this happen ever. Not before, not after. So either this guy was a complete lunatic who pulled off one of the most amazing, brilliant hoaxes ever, or he was who he said he is. And if he is who he says he is, then everything he says is true. And hope is real, and forgiveness is real, and eternity is real, and all those incredible things our hearts long for, but are sometimes just too scared to really believe in it, they're all real. Because Jesus is real and he's alive. Listen, those are our options. We've got to do something with Jesus. We have to do something with the empty tomb. And here's uh, the third truth that I want to leave you with this morning. And we're almost done, I promise. Number three, the empty tomb of Jesus is the gateway to a life of hope. It's a gateway to a life of hope. You know what? We live in a world that is absolutely suffocating in hopelessness. And as Americans, especially in our culture, in our Western culture, listen, we, we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. And yet, we are the most medicated, depressed, anxiety-filled, suicidal nation on the planet. We Listen, we have lost our hope. We have lost our way. 
And here's what I know to be true about hope. Hope is what makes life worth living. I came across this quote, and I just want to share it with you. This will be on the screens. I don't even know who wrote it, but I liked it. So here you go. Human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air. But we cannot live for four seconds without hope. And isn't that true? And I want you to hear from Peter on this, right? The same Peter who denied Jesus three times. Same Peter who walked into that tomb on a dark Sunday morning so many years ago as a skeptic, as a doubter, as a man who probably felt abandoned by Jesus. But he walked out of that tomb, an emboldened, fearless disciple that launched a movement that absolutely shook the foundations of history. I want you to hear from Peter. This is 2 Peter 1. This is what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. But listen to this. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying, look, I know that the resurrection is not a myth. It's not some clever hoax. I'm an eyewitness. I've seen the resurrected Jesus with my own eyes. I touched him. I ate with him. He taught us for 40 days saw this with my own eyes. You can't tell me it didn't happen. And Peter is saying, listen, my, my hope is not in some goofy myth. Amen. I am not giving my life to some fairy tale. My hope is in the guy that said he was going to conquer death, and then he walked out of that tomb. Amen. And I cannot unsee that. And I cannot not believe that. And because of that, I am compelled to follow him. And I am compelled to give my life to him. He is my hope. And then Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, this is what he wrote. He wrote, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. You want hope? He's saying you find it in Jesus. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Friend, I say to you what Peter said so many years ago, your hope, your ultimate hope, your only hope in this life and the one to come is in the resurrected Jesus. Without him, you are hopelessly separated from God forever by your sin. And you say, Chris, man, that sounds really arrogant, man. You think you're better than me just because you believe all this Jesus stuff. No, listen, no, no, I don't. No, I don't. I'm a, I'm a beggar telling other beggars where I found the bread. We all have a common problem, and that's sin. But listen, we all also have a common cure, and that's Jesus. So here's, if I'm just being gut level on it, here's, here's my, my fear. For some of you who are sitting out there this morning, my fear is that some of you are out there and you're thinking, yeah, Chris, all right, man, that sounds good, but I already tried this stuff. Tried church, man, I went with my grandma, went with my mom when I was little, I did the whole Sunday school thing, went to VBS, I walked the aisle, did the whole thing, it didn't work for me. I got hurt, man, it didn't, it didn't work. My best guess, if that's you, if I'm talking to you right now, my best guess is that you got a taste of dead religion and you spit it out, which by the way is exactly what you should have done. 
But my best guess is that you've never really gone all in with Jesus. You've never just laid it all down and said, Jesus, I'm done. Done. I'm, try, I'm tired of trying to live my life for me in my way. I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow you. Amen. Wherever you take me, whatever it costs me, it doesn't matter. Amen. I'm casting my lots with you. I'm in with you. I'm all in, Jesus. See, friend, listen to me. You, you don't need religion. You don't. You need Jesus, and those are two completely different things. The bad news this morning is you are separated from God forever apart from Jesus. The good news is that Jesus has made a way to restore you to God and give you a life of hope. As we close, listen, we're going to wrap things up. Band's going to come in just a minute. We are all broken inside. There's something inside of us that we all intrinsically, inherently know is broken. If you're being gut level honest with yourself this morning, you know it's true about yourself. Something inside is broken. Augustine, the great church father, he put it this way. I love the way he framed it. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. I want you to understand, listen, that brokenness, that restlessness, that will never be fixed by more money. It won't. It'll never be fixed by a better career or more sex or better sex or more social media followers or whatever you think is going to make you happy. Listen to me, you can have all of that and you will be just as broken, just as empty, just as restless on the inside. But there's a cure. And that cure was and is and will always be the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we close, I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me for just a second so we can just kind of focus on some of these things in light of what Luke has said. And I want you to know something. You are staking your life on something this morning. Even if you don't think that you're staking your life, you are. We all do. Whether you're staking your life on trying to be a good person or trying to live by some moral code that you've invented for yourself or maybe you're, you're sort of staking your life hoping that there's no God or maybe you're even here just to cover your bases like, man, just in case there's a God, I'm gonna go on Easter. I don't know what you're staking your life on, but I promise you, you are staking your life on something. We all stake our lives on something. And I'm just telling you this morning, stake your life on Jesus. He's the one thing that changes everything. Let's pray and then we'll sing. God in heaven, thank you for not leaving us as orphans separated from you, God, because of our own sin and rebellion. Thank you for being a good God. Thank you for being a loving God. Thank you for coming after us when we had no way to get back to you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive and that his hope and his victory can be ours. And Father, for the person here who has never started that journey with you, for the person sitting here right now that's never experienced your love and your forgiveness, God, I pray they wouldn't leave this room until they've done that, until they've gone all in with Jesus. And so I would just say, listen, friend, if that's you right now, if I'm talking to you and you're like, yeah, that's me, man. 
That's me. Maybe I grew up in church. Maybe I know some of the right answers, the Sunday school answers, man, but I've never really given my life to Jesus. Listen, if, that, if that's you, I just want you to right where you are, right in the silence of your own mind and heart, just say a very simple prayer like this. The words don't matter. God sees your heart, but just cry out to God in your heart and say something like, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of living life for myself. God, please forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Heal me. I want to follow Jesus. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, it's scary, but I know he's my only hope, and so I'm going to go all in with Jesus. Whatever that looks like, I want to give my life to him. I want to follow him from today until the day that I breathe my last breath on this planet. For those of you in the room who already believe, you're already a disciple who already follow, God, would you, would you embolden us? Would you fan the flames of our faith? God, would you give us a passion to live this incredible life in your kingdom for our good and for your glory? And we ask it in the name that stands above every other name, the strong name of our resurrected King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, listen, that tomb in Jerusalem is still empty. And Jesus is alive. Let's stand and sing to our resurrected king.